0: Hey Molly, it's one of your premium subscribers, Winona. I'm 30 years old, calling from Canada, and I was diagnosed with BPD earlier this year.
1: Um, I sent you an email a couple weeks ago about how your breakup episode really helped me view my separation um, in a totally different way and that I feel so much less
2: alone now. Thank you.
1: Hey Molly, I'm Chris, I'm 34 and I'm from Australia. Um, I'm sure you've heard this one a million times over, but I just wanted to say thank you so, so much for creating your podcast and for the information that you share. Um, I'm in that position of having a partner who has symptoms of BPD um, and of course Google tells me to run. Um, but I love him. I love him for who he he is as a whole. Um, and so it's great to know that there's people out there who see that it can work if both partners are willing to put in the effort, just like any other relationship. So thank you for giving me hope when everyone else was trying to take it away. Hey Molly, my name's Anna. I just started listening
0: to your podcast a couple weeks ago and wow I got diagnosed a couple months ago and you know it explains a lot and there's a lot to resonate with in diagnosis but I like that you see the value outside of being diagnosed um yeah yeah
1: So I just wanted to say thank you for being here for everyone on the podcast and it means a lot to have somebody that has gone through the same things out there and that understands where you're coming from. Hi Molly my name is Renee 26 and I'm calling from Australia. I just listened to your episode you know um, if you're at rock bottom. I mean I just don't even know where to begin but like The community you've created of all of us people that listen to your podcast I really feel for you know both of the voicemails that you got and I related so much to it the platform that you have created and you're helping so many people so grateful that I found this podcast I wish I found it sooner I can't thank you enough for everything that you do
0: Hi, Molly. Um, uh, my name is Carlos. Um, I'm calling from Long Beach, California. Um, I'm just reaching out in regards to my, my relationship. My partner has been diagnosed with a BPD. It's been a year with her and I sort of tried, I tried everything and I feel like nothing has helped. Um, she's tried to see a psychiatrist. We, we ended up getting into a relationship. And things have just been—it's been a roller coaster. It's, and now I, I think I think it's over. But she won't answer the phone. She won't talk to me. And
1: I, I doubt it'll work. But but just to just to make sure she's okay, I've been
0: listening to your podcast even even after the breakup. You know, and just listening to everything. I just you know I just wish she would talk to me. Thank you. To Winona, Chris, Anna, Renee, and Carlos for sending through these beautiful voicemails this week. I did have to edit Winona and Anna's voice notes down a little bit because there were some audio issues, but we understood the sentiment there. I heard the pain in Carlos's voice. And I played his voice note last because I wanted to highlight the pain that some of these symptoms and behaviors leave behind. And as someone who has completely ghosted and cut people off in the past, when I was in the thick of my BPD symptoms. I want you to listen to Carlos's voice. When we ghost people, when we completely cut them off, there is pain there. Nobody likes to have something completely cut off without any kind of conclusion, and we owe that to people, at least. Now, I don't know the details of Carlos's relationship. I don't know the interpersonal dynamics there. Of course, there are some situations where cutting someone off is appropriate. But I just wanted to highlight the pain in his voice because it made me think about the effect that my behavior had in the past when I definitely cut off and ghosted people that I had been seeing for no reason other than I just didn't want to deal with it. And Carlos, my heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry that you're experiencing pain and I'm sure your ex-girlfriend is also in her own pain as well. And all of us here, Chris, who called in to say that she's there and listens to the podcast to support her partner who identifies with the symptoms of BPD. And the rest of you who called in, some newly diagnosed. We have Anna, who was just recently diagnosed. And she says that she appreciates that I talk about finding Our identity outside of the diagnosis. It's a reminder, you know, a diagnosis of BPD, remember that a label or a diagnosis is the map. It's not the journey. It can be helpful to connect us to the right therapies and the right treatments and feel seen in the stories of others. But never forget that you are an individual person with your own story. You are a human being going through your own journey in this world. These voicemails this week that I played display something that I believe so deeply down in my spirit that we're all so similar. The friends and family on the other side of the BPD equation, the people who identify with BPD, we all want the same thing. And that's to be seen and heard, to find our place, to find a feeling of home and belonging, to not feel so empty, to feel secure and happy. I want to play one more voicemail because I believe it really tees us up well for what we're going to be talking about today. And that is all about our desires and I believe so many of us who identify with BPD are stuck in these circles and cycles of feeling like if only we had X then we would be happy and then we spiral back into this continual boredom we also do other things like sharing and trying to connect with people so desperately and maybe clinging and oversharing so that we can achieve what we want which is closeness and intimacy and i felt like this question from a listener lois articulated this really well
2: hey molly i'm lois i'm 32 and from Australia. Um, Yeah, just firstly, thanks so much for all that you do. Um, I've never felt so much resonance with another person's experience before. And that, in and of itself, has been so affirming, so healing. And, like, yeah, revolutionary for my internal experience. Just feel some solidarity. So thank you. Um, My question is around um, oversharing. Uh, I find it a really complex concept because I guess it's all a state of mind or perspective. Like, you could say that your podcast is oversharing, but it is potent and beautiful. And I guess it's about owning it. But um, I feel like I can really own my experience and the intensity of it and, you know, share freely with that. But if it's not immediately uptaken and validated the crushing shame spiral is just so debilitating i just yeah i see its healing potential and i think it's a beautiful thing to offer just open-hearted sharing but yeah obviously with this kind of set of symptomology very difficult to navigate (laughs) um how do you do it yeah your thoughts would be welcome thank you
0: Thank you, Lois, for sharing, ironically, about your question about sharing. I have had a complicated relationship with what you call a complex concept. It is absolutely complex. And I think that as we talk about symptoms and traits of BPD, so often in the conversation of recovery from borderline personality disorder. We talk about managing the symptoms, but I think the conversation that gets missed is what is underneath the symptoms? Because when we go to therapy and we learn DBT skills and all of these things, it's great when we learn these skills in therapy. But if we don't dive under the hood and figure out where all of this comes from, and get to the core and the root of it, it's like building a house on a rotten foundation. We kind of have to get underneath, clean everything out before we can build something new. It's like putting a band-aid over a wound without first cleaning it out, washing it really well, right? It's only half of the process. And so I think it's logical, right, to clean a wound and then put a Band-Aid on it or a plaster, as we say, as my friends in the UK and Australia would call a Band-Aid. But for some reason, it's not the logical thing for us to address what's underneath some of this symptomology before we put the Band-Aid of skills over the top of things. So when we talk about oversharing, as I mentioned before, where is that coming from? It's coming from this deep desire to feel understood, heard, needed, wanted. Many of us overshare because we want to be liked. And I would say that my podcast is not really oversharing because I think oversharing tips into oversharing territory when the audience isn't right and maybe there isn't a suitable level of intimacy before sharing and this podcast is the exact right audience to be sharing what I'm sharing and I know that when I do share it's being heard by people who I've developed this parasocial relationship sure but The majority of my loyal listeners have heard me speaking for 60 plus hours at this point, and I feel a sense of trust and community with you. But it's important that we talk about where our need for oversharing comes from, because if you are doing a behavior and it's followed by what Lois describes as a shame spiral, And we are all too familiar with the shame and cringe spirals that we talk about here on this podcast that so many people who identify with BPD feel, whether that's sending a message and you said too much and you wish you could just unsend it, or overreacting and wish you didn't, paranoid thoughts, all of these things. And where all of this comes from is... Our desires. As you know, I'm a huge book fanatic. I'm always reading between one to three books at any given time. And I'm reading this book called Designing the Mind, the Principles of Psychitecture. And I will absolutely link it in the show notes if you'd like to read it yourself. But there was a specific part in the book this week that really made me feel like I needed to do a little story time episode and read this particular part for you. So let's just dive in. It starts with a quote by a man named Yuval Noah Harari. And the quote says For countless generations, Our biochemical system adapted to increasing our chances of survival and reproduction, not our happiness. The biochemical system rewards actions conducive to survival and reproduction with pleasant sensations, but these are only an ephemeral sales gimmick. Now the author Ryan continues by writing this. During a trip to South America, I was once struck by how frequently the word quiero, appears in Spanish music. Quiero means I want, and I would guess that the phrase I want is no less common in American music. Television, film, and music all reinforce the idea that we should get what we want, that our desires are valid, and there's something wrong if they're not satisfied. That our only chances at true fulfillment lie in immediate pleasure, romantic passion, material possession, power, and prestige. And we all know it would be nearly impossible to create a great film where everything is just as it should be and everyone is pretty much cool with it. Our software was programmed for specific genetic purposes, and it was very important for these purposes that we follow our desires without questioning them too much. These drives have the nifty feature of automatically setting our goals for us, and biased cognitive algorithms convince us that their gratification will make us happy. But the major problem with this approach to life is this. Desires don't point to happiness, and their gratification is no more likely to result in it than their denial. It may seem strange that desires wouldn't be indicators of desirability, but we'll see that this is true. We find it incomprehensible that lottery winners and paraplegics would have the same level of satisfaction because we want to win the lottery and we don't want to lose the use of our legs. So this is a sidebar from me. Earlier in the book, Ryan shares this really interesting piece of information that there was a study done and people that have won tens of millions of dollars in the lottery have relatively the same amount of life satisfaction as people who have been paralyzed and lost the use of their arms and legs. So he continues saying our desires are very good at posing as guides to genuine satisfaction. We're programmed to tie these separate phenomenon together. We're built not to notice how little our actual emotional satisfaction corresponds to the object of our desires. What he's saying here is essentially that our biology is set up to trick us into constantly wanting more. It's like constantly hitting the button. We think that we're going to get something out of it. And if we learned the trick, then our ancestors wouldn't have survived. We were programmed to want to go after our desires. So Ryan continues by saying, You may have heard of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is strongly connected with desire and pleasure. Dopamine is a major part of the brain's reward system, so it's understandable to assume that it's the reward. It's popularly referred to as the pleasure chemical after all, but this view is incorrect. Dopamine is the primary chemical behind desire and anticipation, but it isn't the pleasure chemical. It's better to understand it as the promise chemical. Dopamine is responsible for the anticipation of pleasure that compels us to act. The feeling we typically call pleasure is primarily caused by opioids and endorphins. Dopamine is the craving and the compulsion which causes us to take another hit or try our luck on the slots at a casino one more time. Or keep swiping on TikTok, that's an ad for me. (laughs) It has no obligation to deliver on its promise and very often it doesn't. Mice are normally very eager to drink sugar water, but mice who have been modified to be incapable of producing dopamine do not seem to crave or actively pursue this delicious drink, interestingly, When they're fed sugar water, they experience the same amount of pleasure and enjoyment as a normal mouse, but they won't mind when it's taken away. Deep brain stimulation implants have allowed people to give themselves a hit of dopamine at the push of a button. Although these people do press the button many times a day, they've reported the feeling as being less one of pleasure and more of uncontrollable compulsion. These findings lead us to the conclusion that wanting and enjoying are two entirely separate phenomena. Desire can be programmed by pleasure, but just like in the training of a dog, it's the immediate pleasures that reinforce these desires. Even though we may leave the casino feeling deeply disappointed, the quick and immediate spikes of pleasure we feel each turn we take on the slot machine condition our desire to want to do it again. These all serve as examples that our cravings, short-term or otherwise, are decoys to well-being. Around the 6th century BCE, a man known as Siddhartha Gautama left a life of luxury to seek enlightenment. After apparent success, the Buddha, as he was known after that, began teaching and disseminating his path to liberation. Siddhartha taught that ordinary human life is inherently characterized by something called Dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness. He was partially referring to the quote bad things in life, the inevitable suffering we all face at some point or another in the hands of unpleasant living conditions, sickness, and loss. Losing or failing to attain what we want undeniably results in pain he was also referring to the impermanence of even the good things in our lives. All things which seem to make us happy are impermanent. As soon as we attain something which brings us joy, we become dependent upon it. And when the tides inevitably shift, we become vulnerable to the suffering which comes with loss. When we long for things that we don't have, or long not to lose the things we do have— We are craving, we're grasping for control and permanence in a world where these things can never be attained. But the Buddha argued that unsatisfactoriness was built into the very structure of desire. When it comes to satisfying our cravings, the pleasure we experience and the pain that comes later are tied together. Not only are many of the things for which we long for impermanent, but even permanent achievements don't result in permanent satisfaction. We are built with a very clever mechanism that causes us to become very quickly dissatisfied with our achievements and possessions and begin to look for ways to get even more. This is called hedonic adaptation. At some point, it's inevitable that even the luckiest person will have nowhere to go but down relative to her own expectations. In Why Buddhism is True, Robin Wright outlines a basic principle of Buddhism. Humans tend to anticipate more in the way of enduring satisfaction from the attainment of goals than will in fact transpire. This illusion and the resulting mindset of perpetual aspiration makes sense as a product of natural selection but it's not exactly a recipe for lifelong happiness. So yes, loss or failure to attain desired outcomes results in a very real spike of pain. And success at attaining desired outcomes results in short spikes of pleasure. But this pleasure quickly turns to pain when we lose what we previously gained. And even when we manage to attain semi-permanent achievements, we quickly adapt to our success and the failure to live up to our new expectations results in even more pain. But the real essence of dukkha is not that life is suffering as it has been interpreted before. It's that we're not built to reap real satisfaction from the attainment of our desired goals. But we are built to not notice this fact. Most of us don't consider our lives to be all pain. Many of us do feel relatively satisfied with our lives, hence Gilbert's book title, Stumbling on Happiness. We have to stumble onto happiness because our well-being fluctuates independently of desire gratification. We aren't just bad predictors, we're operating within a faulty framework. A false theory for how psychological well-being actually works. In order to attain genuine fulfillment, we have to learn to quit trusting our wants as valid indicators of what will genuinely satisfy us. If we could learn to ignore our desires, or better yet use them, and understand the real mechanics of satisfaction, we could take our well-being out of the hands of chance. And maximize it. I really love this section of the book, and if you'd like to read the full book, it is called Designing the Mind, The Principles of Psychitecture. I would love to revisit this last quote from the book. We have to learn to quit trusting our wants as valid indicators of what will genuinely satisfy us something that I hear from people who identify with BPD more than anything else is this chronic boredom, chronic emptiness, chronic dissatisfaction. And we try to counter that by changing the people around us, by oversharing, by thinking, if only we moved here or if only this relationship had worked out or fill in the blank but at the end of the day if we focus on learning about things like our desires and what I just shared and looking honestly at how we're wired as human beings because at the end of the day we are just animals that have certain biological frameworks and softwares and programming that make us act the way we do. And it's important that we think about this in our recovery. And it surprises me that more recovery content doesn't focus on this. Because so many of us feel like we're broken and that something is deeply wrong with us, when in reality, I think it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how we're biologically wired. And when it comes to this, it's all about our desires. We have to understand what function that served us. We have to understand where these compulsions that he mentions... That dopamine is actually more of a compulsive feeling and it's up to us to take the seat of the higher awareness and in the case of lois's question why do we want to share and we're letting our desires and our animal instincts jerk us around when as i've mentioned before the key to hacking all of this You're never going to escape these natural human instincts and desires. They're wired into our programming. But where we can sort of evolve out of this animal instinct land (laughs) is by, as we talk about on this podcast, putting space between our desires, our instincts, our feelings, and saying, What is my desired outcome here? And likely, if you are sitting there with someone and your desire is to quote unquote overshare, how we can step into a more wise mind, into a more evolved version of ourselves, a more self-actualized version, which is what we're working towards in our recovery journeys, is you can sit in front of this person and think, look, I'm feeling this compulsive feeling to fill up the silence with a bunch of information, but what do I want to achieve right now? I want to achieve intimacy with this person. What does that look like? It usually looks like asking that person questions, being okay with sitting in silence sometimes, and asking, what do I want to share right now? How do I want to come across? What's my goal? Really finding out how to put that space between has been the biggest game changer. Understanding that I am biologically wired in a certain way, but that I can overcome my animal instincts by learning to create the space. And that's why meditation has such a good reputation. Because things like mindfulness really can help you to learn to be more comfortable in silence. But you don't have to meditate every day to start learning how to do this better. Maybe you want to start creating a more quiet morning routine, cultivating a habit of reading stoic philosophers like I've done. Think about the content that you're consuming every day. Slow down and create more of a peaceful, quiet atmosphere in your life and make your mantra of every single moment of every day, putting space between your reactions, your feelings, your impulses, and your desires and what you actually do. Because the human, the true evolved human higher self version of you is found in the space between. Don't let these animal instincts drag you around, but also have compassion with yourself that we're all wired this way. And it takes practice, time, and patience. And instead of thinking, how can I fix XYZ symptom, dig under the hood a bit more, But that's what we're here doing together on this podcast. So this is the end of part one of this episode. This that you're hearing now is Molly from the future. I recorded what you heard a couple of weeks ago, and I decided that the part two that I recorded for this episode, which is called Why True Happiness Comes From Within... I originally recorded this part 2 for my premium subscribers who support me monthly and get access to a private podcast feed, but because I thought this information was so important, I wanted to extend this episode, and it is a full premium episode so that you can understand the kind of value that I bring to my premium subscribers. And the reason I did this is one because I feel like the information is so important and I want it accessible to everyone. And the second reason is because a few weeks ago, I started a series for my premium listeners called The Hero's Journey. And I'm walking each and every one of my premium subscribers through a step-by-step spiritual self-inquiry healing process. And I decided to release that first episode and the response has been so powerful from my premium subscribers that I decided to instead of release the episode that you're going to hear now, we're going to keep going with the hero's journey. So I really encourage you to subscribe to premium. If you are looking for a step further in your healing journey, If you want to take things a little bit deeper, if you want to go a bit more spiritual at a soul level with your recovery, that's what we do over on the premium version of the podcast. So if that sounds interesting to you, click the link at the bottom of the episode description or go to backfromtheborderline.com and click unlock premium access. But for now, I'd like you to enjoy this free premium episode that you're going to hear now called why true happiness comes from within. If you're a premium subscriber already, keep listening because this one isn't going on the premium feed. You're going to get the next step in the hero's journey series this week. So for my free subscribers now, enjoy this free preview. So on today's premium episode, we'll be continuing our theme, diving under the hood. We talked in the public feed this week all about learning to navigate our desires and how many of our symptoms of BPD come from this stuff that's under the hood. And at the end of the day, what do we all want? We just want to be happy. We just want to be recovered, right? We want that eternal finish line of happiness. In the past, when I've heard people say happiness comes from inside of you, those kind of things, I think it would actually piss me off because I just thought it was a cliche that people repeated. But the more that I dive into philosophy, the further along I get in my recovery journey, I realize that some of these stereotypical things That people say have a lot of truth behind them. But what we miss is we forget to explain to people why they're true. And in today's episode, I want to help describe why you should come to believe that true happiness does come from within, and how when you start cultivating that belief, you'll be surprised that a lot of your symptoms start to naturally diminish. There's a reason why they say that research says that BPD often resolves itself with age. That's something that's actually shared quite frequently in mental health discourse, that somehow BPD just quote-unquote goes away as people get older It's not true for everyone, but it's a common enough thing that it's spoken of in academic circles. And I think this is because with age often comes wisdom. And wisdom is essentially having a clearer understanding of the realities of life. And one of those realities is that... People, places, and things do not bring you happiness. And that maybe our definition of what happiness is has been all wrong. And I have compassion for anyone who feels this way because we're sold a lie. Our capitalist culture really tries to spoon feed us that people, places, and things are going to make us happy and perpetuating that constant desire to pull the slot machine of life, to get that dopamine hit, right? Our culture really takes advantage of our biology. And if you're not tuned into it and self-aware, you're going to get yanked around by media, and by culture at large. But what wisdom allows you to do is when you see stuff like this, you can call it for what it is and be able to say, I know that's not going to bring me true happiness. In the past, as humans, we've learned to control everything but our inner world. And as I mentioned before, This phrase that true happiness comes from within has become almost a cliche. Everyone from Buddha to Stoic philosophers, even to modern positive psychology, it's been shoved down our throats that the external circumstances in our lives and our achievements in the outer world don't really bring lasting satisfaction. And sadly, this phrase and chasing what it means often means that many people kind of get sucked into spiritual rabbit holes that maybe often don't really bring them the satisfaction that they're desiring. So we find ourselves chasing our tails. So what does it actually mean for our happiness to come from within and how can we apply this in our lives? According to ancient philosophers, people like Aristotle, a person could be understood as the sum of his habits. He thought that if he could understand what someone did every day, the actions they took, that is the person, that you could sum up the character of a person by seeing what their habits were. He believed that our thoughts, our words, and our actions sort of flowed in this interconnected web. And this is how We cultivate our minds and our personalities. This is how our character is formed, by the choices that we make. And these choices that we make, Aristotle believed, were the determinator of our happiness level. Now, in more modern times, we've begun to study things like neuroplasticity, which is our brain's ability to change and reorganize So it's really transforming the way that we view even things like personality disorders because neuroplasticity actually challenges with hard scientific data the idea that someone's personality could be permanently disordered. Our brains can change. We can build new neural pathways, new habits, new ways of thinking. Is it easy? No. But we know that the neural pathways that make up our minds can be built, reinforced, or even diminished through learning, conditioning, and practice. Everything that you do in your day, everything you say, do, or don't say, or don't do, even more importantly, plays a key role in shaping your mind. For example, choosing to sit on your bed and swipe on Instagram for three hours a day is actually developing a practice and strengthening connections between certain neurons in your brain than if you were to choose to go outside and get some vitamin D and maybe read a book in the park, for example. It's important to think about this concept of the choices that we make and the ways that we choose to spend our time, the ways that we choose to respond and interact with the people in our lives, the world around us, and how we even speak to ourselves. This adds up to a wider picture of how we experience life. And if I'm being honest with myself, I absolutely made decisions that I can understand why my life was experienced as unhappy. For example, I was trying to find myself and other people. I would constantly overshare and try to push the fast forward button on intimacy without really knowing that true intimacy takes time. I would spend so much time scrolling on my phone. I spent so much money on clothes and altering my body and my appearance, and very little time actually creating moments of silence in my day, creating time for introspection. I was by no means a wealthy person for most of my life. I consider myself to be doing better now Far from wealthy, but for the vast majority of my 20s, I was living paycheck to paycheck, and a lot of it in serious credit card debt. And I could have made choices that were actually a lot less expensive, like choosing to keep myself hydrated, to go on a walk every day, to get a little bit of vitamin D to take a step back from social media and choose to read and take advantage of all the free resources online that would fill my cup up rather than drain it. I could have made more serious effort to ask myself what I really wanted in life, what I wanted in a partner, rather than chasing material things chasing the next night out self-soothing with binging tv series and putting off going within myself and all of those choices as my therapist Bev told me assess your vulnerabilities are you hungry tired have you hydrated your body I was constantly sleep-deprived not eating the right things, spending all of my time consuming dopamine hits of social media, trying to alter my physical appearance, and then wondering why I found myself in a suicidal self-hate spiral. And when I look back on it now, I can see really clearly that all of those choices I was making added up to that finished product, which was rock-fucking-bottom. So what choices are you making that you could potentially change to add up to something different than you're experiencing right now? How can you release the idea that people, places, and things are going to make you happy Because they're not. And you can either choose to continue living in that illusion or you can grow up and become wise. And I say that with all the love in my heart because I wish someone would have told me that sooner. I really, really do. Because I say this as someone who could have gotten more than 10 years of her life back and been in a very different place if I would have had someone who would tell me these things. But I believe it's my mission in life to tell them to you here in this format. And look, there are some things you can't control. We can't control systemic oppression. There is a huge amount of inequality right now in the world. So many people don't have access to housing, have the money they need people can't afford therapy or even if they're in a country where there is publicly available health care there are waiting lists and the people who work in these systems are overwhelmed and some of them are not informed so there are certain things that are out of our control some people have no access to healthy nutritious foods anywhere where they can actually get to them So I'm aware of all of these things and I want to point that out. But for some of us, we have access to these things and we're just choosing to bury our heads in the sand. So I'm asking you, there may be some things you can't control and that you genuinely don't have access to, but what things can you commit to today that you are going to change? How are you going to make it so that as Aristotle says, these the sum of all of your reactions, your choices, and the ways that you choose to spend your time, that is your character. So think about it now. How do you spend your day? What do you think about? What choices have you made? Who are the types of people that you're associating with? How do you speak to yourself? And the addition of all of that is your character now. And if you look at it, my guess is you, if you're being honest with yourself, you can say that it makes sense why you feel the way you do. And you don't have control in some of these things, but what things can you control? What things can you change today? And you'd be surprised that really small things make a huge difference. Recently... I've decided to go on a little bit of an elimination diet because I was convinced that my gut health and a lot of inflammation stuff was causing my mood to really fluctuate and also caused me a lot of other health issues like joint pain and I could go on. So it sucks because I love food and I get a lot of pleasure out of eating, <laughs> but I cut things off and I'm going on a whole foods diet like very nutritional and still making sure that I eat what I need to eat but I'm also doing some light intermittent fasting nothing major and committed to really hydrating myself well each day and I got myself a Fitbit and now I am committing to Exercising each day in a way that works for me and that's typically just like a really long walk and then also getting at least like 30 minutes of vitamin D out in the sun when the UV index is low because I don't want to be getting sunburned and with just those changes I'm actually spending less on food because I was spending so much on takeout and a bunch of crap and In just about nine days now, my mood is so much more stable. And I realized that the sum of all these decisions, even when I was doing really well in my recovery journey, I realized, wow, I'm doing all this work on myself, on my mind, but I was completely neglecting my physical body, the way that I was eating the way that I was hydrating myself, the sun I was getting, and the exercise I was getting. And not only that, in addition to that, sleep. Keeping the phone out of my bedroom before I go to bed and making my room pitch black. With those things, I can't believe the difference in my mood and my energy levels throughout the day. And I realized all these decisions I was making was leading me to feel like shit. I knew myself better than ever. I feel like mentally I was in a better place. I was working through all my trauma. As you know, I've been showing up on this podcast for each and every one of you, but my energy levels were shot. I felt like very irritable and that my moods were up and down all the time still. And with these changes, it's a different story. Now it's early days. And this is just what's working for me right now. So I don't necessarily think that what works for me will work for you, but I want to share that sometimes tweaks can be free and can be very small and they can have a huge amount of difference. And really it's quite simple. The world tries to tell us that we need to buy all this stuff and Do all these things when in reality, you just need to take a really good look at how you're spending your day and the choices that you're making, the people you're around, the way that you're talking to yourself, the things you're putting in your body, the things you're not putting in your body, things you're not doing, and what does that picture paint? And when you see that picture, if it's one you're not happy with, to not shame yourself, but just to think of small things that you can tweak every single day. And you'll realize that with time and persistence, that picture will start becoming one that you like even more. So I hope this was helpful for you. Things I want you to keep in mind this week are how you are dragged around by your desires and whether you're able to really put some space in between that. I want you to think about how these animal instincts that you have and this compulsion that you have to want to hit the dopamine button, to scroll, to take that hit of weed, to drink, to text that person, to get the validation that you need, maybe to send the nude. (laughs) If you're like me, (laughs) back in the day, not anymore. No shade to the nude senders, but I, I sent enough nudes for my time. I'm still wondering when those are going to come back to bite me in the ass one day. But thankfully, they were sent in a time where cell phone pictures were much more pixelated than they are now. But I digress. (laughs) Happiness really is found within. And happiness feels different than is painted out to us. It's not this like can't eat, can't sleep, reach for the stars, World Series kind of stuff. For those of you who are fellow millennials and you've seen the Mary Kate and Ashley movie, It Takes Two, you'll know where that quote is from. (laughs) Happiness to me now is just a sense of peace. It's a sense of empowerment knowing that i am becoming wiser each and every day it isn't this overwhelming extreme feeling and i think for those of us with bpd who have these extreme emotions we're either extremely overstimulated or extremely understimulated or dissociated and i think we've been sold a lie and if you can wake up to the fact that happiness is actually just this sense of stillness that is happiness to me and that is what I'm hoping for you to achieve or to aim for and find out what it means for you not what society wants you to feel and if you can make some of these little changes in your life you'll be in a better position to stop and create moments of silence to think about what you actually want Because so many of us are spending so much time distracted and swiping and wanting and needing what's being forced down our throats that there's not enough time for us to think about what we actually want. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do think that a capitalist society thrives off of the vast majority of people not knowing that happiness comes from within and not knowing that happiness is nothing that has fireworks and bells and whistles it's just stillness and that it is inevitable that there are going to be great times there are going to be hard times we are going to lose things and people and we're going to fail and we're going to succeed. It's all part of the game of life. No one is born into this world that is immune to those things. So what we can do is grow up, become wise, and understand that Happiness means something different to each and every one of us, but what is universal should be that pursuit of our own inner peace and finding silence to find out what that really means for us. So with that, I'll leave you this week. I hope you have an amazing day. Reach out to me, leave a voicemail. Let me know how this message impacted you. Let me know what you choose to change If you make little switches in your life, let me know how that worked out for you. I'd love to hear about it. So go to backfromtheborderline.com and leave me a voicemail because I'd love to play it for the other listeners so we can continue fostering this beautiful sense of community that we're developing through the sharing of these voicemails. But with that, have a lovely rest of your day. I'm sending you all the love, big hugs from your BPD big sister. You know I say all of this in love and care for you. These are hard things. Most people don't even get to this point. Most people are content with living their life completely lacking in self-awareness and eating up the definition of happiness and success that's spoon-fed to them by society. So if you are even this far, you should give yourself a pat on the back and know, as we've discussed before, that this is a process. So again, I'm actually going to shut up now. (laughs) Love you lots. Have an amazing week. So I hope you enjoyed that preview. That's the kind of stuff you can expect over on premium access. So, if you'd like to become a premium subscriber, as I mentioned, you can do that by going to backfromtheborderline.com and clicking unlock premium access. Over on the premium feed this week, we are going to be continuing our hero's journey series for some really deep spiritual healing work. So, join us. If not, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you to everyone who submitted their voicemails. If you want to submit your voicemail, you can go ahead and go to my website and click that microphone icon and record your submission. I love each and every one of you. If you can, rate or review the podcast. It really helps me. I love hearing your feedback. Share the podcast with a friend, with your therapist. Spread the word. That's how this works. It's how we keep the good going. It's how we spread the healing. It's how we make change. Have an amazing, amazing rest of your week.